Welcome to the WMKT Week in Review. Morning, Northern Michigan. This is the WMKT Week in Review, and I am Nick Rudy, your host. Thanks for tuning in. Always appreciate you joining me on these Sunday mornings. Well, this week was the big week. As you know, we had the primary election for the Democrats and Republicans on Tuesday. Some interesting results. We covered it on Tuesday. If you were listening in to our special election coverage, you'd be up to date on all of the uh, all the election results that impacted us here in northern Michigan. And we even we covered the uh, the third U.S. House district down in Grand Rapids as well, because that was a kind of a, uh, in my opinion, kind of an indicator of uh, where the Republican Party is heading at a national level. And we're able to look at an election that's a little bit more close to home. We don't have to pay attention to an election in Georgia or Arizona um, we had something right here in Michigan where we're with some familiar names. You know, the Meyer family is obviously uh, very near and dear to us Michiganders here. Should I say Myers family? Because we added S to Myers in Michigan here for some reason. But anyway, with it being election season, you probably noticed these last couple of shows have been a bit different talking with candidates, catching up with them before the uh, the primary took place. And then well, we're uh, going to get back into the swing of things starting next Sunday. Uh, during that show, looking at some news in depth and stuff. And I do have a news story that I like to go over. It is election oriented. Um, and I think it's pretty important to let you guys know because I think there was uh, some people questioning why the results were coming in a little later. And I know everyone's a little uh, on edge with the 2020 election still. So I want to uh, just kind of update you on that. And then what we're going to do today is uh, we had uh, four winners that we've talked to in the past. Uh, Gosh, about eight months now. So we're going to play the hits today. And I kind of like how this is going to be set up because it's going to get these candidates pushed out for the general election. But also there's a couple of issues that are hot button issues here that we've discussed with some of these candidates. And basically each one is going to handle one of the hot topic issues that um, are facing Michigan, whether that be abortion, whether that be critical race theory and education. Um or whether that be uh, jobs and then um, energy in line five. So all of those are going to be hit on, and I'll let you know which each candidate is going to talk about as well before we get into that. But as I mentioned, election results came in a bit late. You might have noticed that um, it was not extra. I'll explain what I mean, because it wasn't extraordinarily late considering what the uh, election workers ended up doing but it was much later than it historically has been for a midterm election so basically nearly 80 percent of michigan counties reported delayed results on tuesday evening and what happened was usually these election officials they get these results and then they use a modem to send the unofficial results to the county buildings and then the county buildings um kind of post the results and then send them down to lansing um to be verified by the board of canvassers and that's how that usually goes but with the 2020 election there was a lot of you know um skepticism about how that turned out if there was fraud and whatnot and there has been concern um and again it was heavily in 2020 but over the past couple of years uh election cycles that these modems you know it's basically a phone line that they can be hacked and the results can be changed before you know the transfer sent to the county building um, I don't know all the technical details and how the hacking can occur, whether it happens or not, is anyone's, you know, 
uh, opinion and guess, um, and that's not what we're here to decide on this show, but I'm kind of explaining why uh, these results came in a little bit late is because it was 65 of uh, 83 counties in Michigan actually no longer use modems um, because of the backlash. It was so heavy uh, in the last election in 2020. And it's still actually ongoing. Modems are being pulled from these machines that the clerks have, um, you know, at the township halls. And so they're getting pulled out of the machine. So it's not even an option anymore. And so what they had to do is they had to count all of these ballots, you know, and make the numbers balance. And then um, from the precincts, they would drive the results to the county building. So obviously that takes more time. So theoretically, we probably should have expected a results at around 10 o'clock, um, 11 o'clock, and results started trickling in around then. But in most counties, most precincts didn't fully report until later into the evening. Gosh, there was a couple of races that didn't get a a projected winner until about three in the morning. Um, and on average, they were between they were called between 12 and midnight, unless you were looking at that gubernatorial race where, my lord, Tudor Dixon, it was called at 943 by the AP. And that was that's even early for uh, an election cycle that ha- uses a modem. So, um, you know, and one of the things the election officials uh, did know is they really want to go back to modems. Um, and they're pretty disappointed with a lack of public trust. However, um, I think they're playing it safe. And what they've said is they're not going to use them until, you know, they regain public trust. Um, so, again, you know, there's no really answer coming from us whether these um, modems get hacked or not. That's not what we're here to make a, a decision regarding. But we're just saying that's why um, there was a lot of skepticism with how the modems were used in 2020. And, um, you know, the fear of that it's a possibility, apparently, that they can be hacked. So these election officials in 60 Five of the 83 counties decided to phase them out so that, you know, they wouldn't have to deal with the backlash. And um, so what I referred to earlier is like, wow, I mean, you know, these results, they did come in late. But regarding considering the fact that these, um, you know, these election workers had to drive them to these counties, um, I I think that was, you know, getting the results on average about midnight to one o'clock for most of the races. um, I think that's actually pretty good timing wise. So, you know, that's kind of where we sat with that. All right, but as we um, as we discussed, we're going to talk to um, we're going to have kind of the, the greatest hits here, and we have four topics with four candidates that we've just talked to that have won their primaries. Dr. Bob Lorenzer, he's running for Congress, and then we have his opponent Jack Bergman, who's the incumbent for uh, District One uh, for the U.S. House, and then uh, Neil Frisky won the 107th, and then John DeMoose, he won the House. Uh, I mean, the sorry, the uh, Senate. Um, 37th district Senate seat. So, so we'll be doing that. And then let's get started here with Neil. The conversation I wanted to focus around with him since he is a small business owner is jobs and affordable housing. It kind of all ties together. So, um, more job oriented and how do we keep and maintain, you know, young professionals here in Northern Michigan for critical industry. So, Let's go back in time to our conversation with Neil Frisky. And again, he is going to be the Republican vying for the House 107th seat against Jody Decker, the Democrat here in November. So there are a few issues that tie into this question. So feel free, you know, if it if it's something that you want to talk about, feel free to divert. 
on those topics, such as affordable housing and access to childcare. But Northern Michigan has trouble retaining young professionals. Um, any thoughts on how to make Northern Michigan a more accessible and desirable place to work and raise a family, aside from its you know natural beauty and relatively low crime? Because you mentioned earlier that you know you're experience in small businesses and in favor of lowering taxes so if you know that could potentially play into getting more young talent to you know stay in northern michigan yeah well i think that you know all these things do go hand in hand i have four adult sons and um they all left northern michigan uh one of them did last year move back to the traverse city area so that's exciting for me as a dad Mm -hmm. but um uh, the bottom line is, you know, um, in one of them now lives in Texas, one's living in Tennessee, uh, one of them is still in the Chicago area, that's where they all were at one time, but, you know, they left for better opportunities, and um, I think that uh, it all starts with, with creating a, the right business climate to attract businesses. Um, I know that with the, with the remote working uh, thing now with the whole, you know, that obviously has gained a ton of popularity ever since, you know, 2020 with the, with the COVID situation. And so that has, you know, helped a little, so to speak. There's a lot of people that have moved up again into northern Michigan even that are working remotely. But um, that is, uh, and that's great. And I think that probably, uh, you know, everybody's figured out that that can work. And I don't know that that's ever going to go backwards again. And I don't think it needs to necessarily, but if we don't increase the business climate and and get businesses back into our state, ultimately there's no way. I mean, we can't; these jobs can't get created out of thin air. And so uh, I think it really boils down to, you know, uh, increasing the business climate, getting rid of you know some of the corporate tax structures, and just you know, getting businesses back into our state. I mean, our state was once a booming economy. And so clearly it can happen. And uh, we've, we've got to get that reversed um, because otherwise we are stuck in the rut of just having this tremendous influx of summer traffic where you know, people are coming to their second and third homes. And that's what my current business, that's, you know, that's how I survive with my current business. Those are the people I'm working for currently. And so, I mean, it's great, we need that and it's a vital part of our economy, but long-term, We've got to keep. We've got to keep our young people here. I think uh, there is does seem to be a nice uh, push right now, uh, encouraging people to get back into the trades, which will certainly help you know local economies. Um, and it's a much needed thing if you look at you know whether it's a plumber or an electrician or an HVAC person or, or you know welders, fabricators. Um, they're a dying breed. You know all the people. I think of the people I use currently in my business. And they're all people my age and older, and there's very few young people. So we really do need to encourage kids to, uh, you know, to, to consider the trades um, instead of you know. Uh, uh, and I'm not saying that you know don't go to college because obviously some of these trade schools are are a form of higher education too. But you know, unfortunately, uh, so many uh, you know young men and women. They go to college, they accrue fifty to $100,000 worth of debt, and uh, then they struggle to find a job to, to, to live on and, and support that debt load on top sure. of it. So um, I think it, you know, it, it, it seems like it, it, I try to oversimplify it, but really it does boil back down to we've got to increase the business climate and, uh, or we can't retain people. 
there's few issues that matter more to most voters than their children. Education. We send our kids off to school for an extraordinarily large portion of their life. They spend, quite frankly, an equal amount of time at least with their teachers and the school staff as they do with their parents at home. And so making sure that parents have control of their children's educational choices is something that is always at the top of voters' minds, especially during the general election. John DeMoose won the primary for the 37th District Senate seat in the GOP side. So I wanted to go back to our conversation many months ago when I had him on for his original interview. And I wanted to get his take on critical race theory, if it's in our schools, and if it should be taught. His wife, Margot is on the school board at Harbor Springs. So not only as an elected official, as he is the uh, representative for the House 107th District, um, but also uh, with his uh, wife's insight uh, in hand. And as a parent himself um, of a couple of children, um, wanted to get his opinion on the state of the education system here in Michigan and more pointedly here in northern Michigan. Your wife is on the Harbor Springs School Board. Yep. Topic at the forefront of national thought is critical race theory. Many people in northern Michigan, um, even being a Republican area still, I think it's it's gotten a little, I don't know if it's better or worse, but the, the feeling might have changed. But long for a long period of time, they kind of feel isolated from a lot of problems right. facing the country, kind of like a, their own little bubble. Yeah. But has crit- critical race theory been a topic of discussion in northern Michigan schools? I actually... That was going to be the the end of the question, but I actually was reading this morning that House Bill fifty seven twenty two, it's going to they're trying to get it passed. Republicans are trying to get it passed that uh, requires public schools to post all curriculum, books, right. literature, writing assignments, and planned field trips before the school year begins. So it's obviously something that has been thought of in at least the state of Michigan. Is that something that's a concern in northern Michigan or just Michigan as a whole? Sure. I mean, I've heard I've heard it, and there was a story of somebody out of a nearby town who who gave an assignment to their classes to go home and figure out how to become less white. I mean, that's wrong. Uh, you know, that is wrong. I, I look at So we have a wide range of kids, and my youngest is seven years old. He's in second grade, and th- there's not a racist bone in this kid's body. He is a good little boy. And so I think, I think parents get concerned that there might be teaching going on out there that makes these kids feel guilty for something they had nothing to do with. So critical race theory, though, I'll tell you the story on this. I I actually co-authored a bill that was, we never talked about critical race theory, but with this Andrew Beeler, it was his bill. But but it's basically addressing these topics. And he came to me with with this bill, and I said, Andrew, I get where you're going with this, but I think we need to really step it back and, and be sure that every word in this bill um, is what we it says what we want to say. I mean, what we're saying is not that these terrible things didn't happen in our country. They did. This mm-hmm. was really bad. I mean, I'm as appalled by what happened after slavery as I was before slavery because sure. of segregation and things. It just was terrible. Absolutely undermined everything that our country supposedly stood for. And, um, you know, I'm so, I love our founding fathers. I think that they were brilliant in the way they la- laid out this country. But it, what a shame that we didn't live up to it from the beginning. We're still paying the price today because of that compromise or because of, I don't mean mm-hmm. compromise in a good sense there. I mean, because we compromised our values from the beginning. Sure. We're still paying that price. So 
That, don't, don't get me wrong on that, but by the same token, we don't need to be teaching our kids who are innocent that somehow they're responsible or that they're born racist or there's something wrong with, with who they fundamentally are. And that was the purpose of Andrew Beeler's bill. It wasn't necessarily worded like that. It was innocently mistakes. So what I actually did is I said, look, I get where you're coming from, but why don't we, uh, there's a couple Democrats I'm friends with down from the Detroit area. I said, why don't we get in a back room and, and just talk through the points in this bill? Um, because I want, I want him to see what, what some of these things were perceived as. So we went, it was the most unbelievable meeting. At first, the two Democrats, they were like, what in the world? Are you guys crazy? Why are you talking to us mm-hmm. about this? We'll never support any of this. I said, no, 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 we, we don't even expect you to. But I think that language is really important. At one of the, here's an example. He had in there that the United States is not a systemically racist country. By systemic, he I know his heart. What he meant is we're not passing laws that are intentionally racist like they used to do. Um, you know, the actual system. But what was pointed out, and this was such an interesting um, exchange, my friend from Detroit uh, said, you know, are you crazy? It is systemically racist. And she was talking about sort of the unofficial system that she's lived with as a black woman. And the two were talking over each other. And what came together was that word systemic was a problem. And so we changed it to inherent. We're not, and, and that little bit of a difference made it work for both of them. Now, that line didn't even survive the last, the last version of this uh, bill that passed because we ended up wanting to just make it about the children. But those are the types of conversations. When I say bring people together, there's sure. no reason to intentionally offend this person to, to in, unintentionally offend this person. And the only way you would know you're doing that is by talking to that person and understanding, wait, when I see this word, I hear something different than what you mean. And it took, and this is credit to people on both sides. It took being able to talk to them who we knew because we had built a, taken the time to build at least a cordial relationship with that. They weren't going to just full on judge every motivation we have on this, that Mm -hmm. they would see our heart and believe that we're not actually trying to perpetuate racism here. So they understood us and trusted us and we trusted them. So what we were left with, and I wish I had a copy of the bill here, but was fundamental things. A child is not born racist by virtue of their, their, um, their background. I don't know who disagrees with that. A child is not responsible for, we didn't use the word sins, but it's basically for the sins of their fathers in this ground, because they're not. My little Henry isn't responsible for things that happened in the 1950s, you know? And so these were four or five premises that everybody should agree upon. Now, I get it. When it came for a vote, it passed the House of Representatives with only Republican support, but the Democrats didn't vote no. They all abstained. Because on the one hand, they couldn't be perceived as supporting something, you know, this whole idea of going against critical. I understand politically they couldn't do it. But also there was nothing in that bill that any American who genuinely believes in our the way we're built doesn't agree with. So, I mean, those are interesting topics. You know, sure. that's how I, I look at these things. If when you hear those things, those horrible stories of go home and figure out how to become less white. Nobody supports that. I mean, that's terrible stuff. And if that really is happening, we need to stop that. I mean, uh, and so that's why we did the bill. Dr. Bob Lorenzer from 
the UP. He won his primary pretty handily, I might say, because he ran unopposed. But he's going to be running against incumbent Jack Bergman for District 1 for the uh, U.S. House here in Michigan. And I wanted to get his take as he has a unique one, especially, um, you know, today it's so divided, even more so after the Dobbs decision, which overturned Roe v. Wade. I wanted to go back to uh, my conversation with Bob about abortion because he has a unique take. And also um, at the end of this uh, segment, talking about how to get to the heart of the issues instead of talking about the symptoms. I saw on your website that you, you say that you're pro-choice and pro-life. How do you walk that, you know, unarguably very fine line? I think it's, I think more people should walk that fine line. If we end up talking about, let me explain first, pro-life. Pro-life for me means more than you're just anti-abortion. You have to support the family, the, the family, the mother, the child, before pregnancy, during pregnancy, and after pregnancy. After pregnancy, if the child's born, being pro-life means does that child have a chance? Are they provided education, health uh, care? That is being pro-life all the way down the line. Pro-choice is to respect people's individuals, uh, individuals' decisions on, on these issues. I think you could be both. You, uh, you could be both. I find it interesting that a lot of uh, a side will say we're after individual liberty. You can't tell me what to do. But then it comes over to uh, abortion. Then that side will tell you exactly what to end up doing. Abortion has probably, let's look at even, uh, I think, Colorado. Colorado decreases uh, their incidence of abortion by 50% by how? Education. Education, birth control, counterceptions. You could be pro-life. You could be uh, uh, pro-choice all in one. I think it's the best choice to end up being if you were a Republican. Now, a lot of people will end up saying, oh, late-term abortions. Um, no, no. You know, Roe versus Wade went down to a viability, a reasonable part, but outlawing abortions, you know, completely. Is that the solution again? Is that the solution to the problem? You're going to pull it underground. You're going to make it more dangerous. It's still going to be there. It's going to be, I'm after harm reduction. I don't think anybody in many ways would be called pro-abortion. That is the thing to do. Most people are placed in a difficult situation that that's one of the alternatives. I think if you believe in freedom, individual, you don't want uh, a religious, your religious beliefs to go over my religious belief. Sure. They're, they're both uh, very, very compatible. So the kind of the, the transition is what we've kind of alluded to throughout the entire show so far was, you know, whether it be gun control, abortion, other divisive topic, it seems that Elected officials, uh, and frankly now the public over the past 25 years, argue um, about solutions to the symptoms and not the root cause. Um, you know, abortion, for instance, solutions you could have range from this abstinence to access to contraceptives would result in un- fewer unplanned pregnancies. Those are obviously examples both parties wouldn't accept both of, but um, they're often very rarely discussed on, you know, on public platforms. Um, so how do you broadly seek to get to the root of issues and get the public get to argue about root of issues instead of these symptoms? That's what we have to do if we want to move forward. We have to 
we got, let's get back to social media. Social media wants us to talk about, you know, the guns, the abortions, and not the root causes. How about if social media went to like just what you're doing to the root causes and said, how can we do this? How can we have a better economy? How can we have livable wages? How can we move forward? How can we get broadband in over here versus saying government bad, government good? It doesn't make sense. Let's get to the issue. How do we get broadband here? How do we decrease abortion? How do we decrease uh, gun uh, violence? Then put in the same room, the Republicans and the Democrats that wouldn't even talk with each other, put in the same room, address the root causes and see what they come up with. They'll find out, I think, for gun violence, they, they probably will find out they don't understand as much as they thought they did. They, they have to separate, oh, maybe the 1,000 deaths a year from the police have a completely different approach than family violence, and that has a completely different uh, uh, control than preventing deaths from suicide. You'll find the same thing with, with abortion. But what do we focus on? Yep, we'll focus on less than 1% of all abortions that are after viability, at 1%. We don't talk about the 99% of the, of, the, uh, of the time where the root causes. So, yes, social media could help and polls back in the middle. Let's talk about the facts. Let's talk about the problems, and let's get reasonable solutions. There's where I trust members of the 1st District, Northern Michiganders and Youpers, place together and say, how can we hold the family together? How can we hold our values and our liberties together and fix these problems to make us make uh, the place we live better? And Dr. Bob's opponent, Jack Bergman, on Line 5 and Energy. Jack is the incumbent right now for the U.S. House District 1 here in Michigan. Do you represent the area that includes the Mackinac Bridge? I want to get your insight into Line 5. Do you have a solution that you like, such as the tunnel that you support? Are you in favor of removing Line 5 from the straits? Well, number one, um, any... You know, think about, I was an airline pilot for, you know, 25 plus years, thereabouts. Um, safety first, safety second, safety third. That pipeline has been in the straits since the 1950s. Number one, if it's there, you know, keep it safe, first of all. And if it's, if it's not safe, shut it down. But there's been no indication uh, given the safety procedures, that it is unsafe. And, the, and yes, the, the solution to ensure safety and to ensure the flow of, of uh, liquids and gases through it is to build the tunnel. You know, it's, a, it's, an, it's a, an agreement between the state of Michigan and Enbridge, with the exception of FIMSA, which is the federal regulatory social, uh, you know, group body, um, the federal government really doesn't have an involvement in this, but I believe, number one, the tunnel should be built, keep it safe, keep it working, because if the, some of the proposals I've seen where, okay, well, we're going to add rail cars or we're going to add fuel trucks, holy cow, you, uh, you decrease your margin of safety exponentially by putting those fluids in trucks or on rail. We all see it, you know, more often than we'd like on the evening news where there's been a, a rail car go off, a, a truck roll over, what it happens to be. And I would suggest to you, after they build that tunnel for, for the, uh, the pipeline, the next tunnel they should build should be uh, to uh, bring the largest vehicle that's on the road, whatever that might be, uh, under the Straits of Mackinac, because the bottom line is if the governor 
of the state had to move goods and services in an emergency situation between peninsulas and the Mackinac Bridge is down for whatever reason, high winds, um, you know, truck jackknifed, uh, you know, whatever it happens to be, and that bridge is closed, the governor has no secondary plan to move goods and services between peninsulas uh, if there was an emergency. So I believe the second tunnel should be built as soon as the first tunnel's done. And now that's where the federal government gets involved because we could use, like we did in the Mackinac Bridge, we could use interstate money uh, to build that as part of a really focused infrastructure uh, project. Sure. I, I haven't heard of the, uh, the the second tunnel. Is that something that's newly discussed, or has that kind of always been an option on the table with building the, the first one? Actually, actually, when we started the discussion on Line 5 five years ago, about after I got here to Congress, I've been here about a year, and I started to really look at it in detail as where, if any, I could play a role, positive role. And I said, well, heck. So I started talking about this in public about four years ago. But the, you know, folks, uh, folks who just want to focus on, on the the pipeline aren't really willing to listen to what would be good infrastructure. An example: Why did it take us thirty plus years to get the Sioux Locks finally funded? And, you know, being built, that was because, you know, myself and a couple others uh, got involved. Uh, the president got involved, uh, the former president, uh, a few years ago. And now we've got we've got all the all the money uh, required to build that new lock. And, uh, you know, they're moving dirt and building things up there. So uh, we just we've had too many politicians for too long who have actually not thought, I think, in depth about what the real needs of the district are. We are backed up against the clock, but thank you for listening, everyone. This has been the WMKT Week in Review. I'm Nick Rudy, your host. I'll be back next Sunday with the news that you need to know. This is 1023 and 1033 FM, 1270 AM, Triple Talk, WMKT.